Once upon a time, a man married a nurse. Earlier in their marriage, she would make a fuss over his every ache and pain. His littlest boo-boo demanded her attention. But he knew the honeymoon was over the day that he climbed into the attic to fix the broken attic fan. As he lifted himself from the ladder into the attic, he scratched his head on the forehead on one of the his forehead on one of the cross beams. Crawling over the rafter, splinters stuck in his hands. As he was changing the fan belt, he cut his forearm. And on the way down the ladder, the last two rungs broke under his weight. He landed awkwardly, twisting his ankle. So there he is. He's got a cut on his head. He's got splinters in his hand. He's got a bleeding forearm, and he's got a twisted ankle. Well, when the fellow limped into the kitchen where his wife was, she took one look at him and shouted, Are those your good pants? <laughs> it was overwhelming evidence that the honeymoon was over and that the marriage had begun. Every marriage reaches a point where the giddiness, the delight of the honeymoon begins to fade and the realities of married life settle in. But even a seasoned marriage should retain traces of that honeymoon happiness. All marriages should be sprinkled with joys and thrills and sparks and romance and always a sense of partnership between the husband and the wife. What's sad is to witness a marriage that's lost all of its vim and vigor, a marriage that's become stale, that's even gone flat, that's more a burden now than a blessing. If your marriage has lost its spark, its electricity, its passion, I want you to know, I want to show you today how to get that back. How you can re-strike the match. That you can relight the match in your marriage. That you can relight the flame. There's a story in Judges chapter 13 that contains truths that if taken to heart and if put into practice can revitalize a marriage. Judges 13 can turn a fizzler into a sizzler. It's the story of Manoah and his wife. They were the faithful parents of God's strong man, Samson. And we read about them in Judges chapter 13 beginning in verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. And his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, 
Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not sitting with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life in his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Here's a story that progresses through six stages. I'd like to outline them for you and then we'll go back and talk about them. As a matter of fact, we've got the outline up on the screen here where we will shortly. And this morning is the morning for you to take notes. So put out your little book and make sure you jot these six stages down. First, in verse 2, the story starts with desperation. This marriage is barren. Second, in verse 3, suddenly there's a visitation. God decides to do something about their barrenness. Third, in verses 3 through 5, an angel shares a revelation, a message from God about what he plans to do in this marriage. Fourthly, verses 6 through 14, they detail a struggle for unification. You see, at first, Mr. and Mrs. Noah just can't seem to get it together. Then fifth, in verses 15 to 19, the Manoahs 
put on a show of dedication. They pledge themselves to God and they declare their newfound commitment with a sacrifice. And finally, sixth, in verses 20 and 21, God provides a sign of revitalization in this marriage. A miracle occurs. Six stages. It starts with a desperation. Suddenly, God intervenes with a visitation. He shares a revelation. They struggle to get it together and find that unification. It finally gets resolved with a show of dedication. And at last, we see a sign of revitalization as God does something special in this marriage. I hope you pay close attention this morning for in this ancient story, God communicates amazingly relevant insights that just might save a marriage or two here today. Well, we start with a desperation. This is a barren marriage. Verse two tells us, Manoah and his wife were childless. Today, this is a difficult burden for a couple to bear, but it was far worse for Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. In ancient times, barrenness was viewed as a curse from God. A childless woman was scorned and ridiculed by her peers. She was treated cruelly. People didn't do much caring for a woman who was barren. But there are other types of barrenness that that exist more so than just simply childlessness. For I know couples who suffer from an emotional barrenness. No expressions of affection, no demonstrations of love. The wellspring seems to have gone dry. Reminds me of the foolish fella who never told his wife he loved her. He explained to the marriage counselor, I said I loved her the day we married and if anything changed, I'd let her know in the future. That is not the way to keep the marriage fires burning. Other couples suffer from a relational barrenness. They're no longer friends, more so strangers. They've stopped sharing life. They lack common goals and objectives. They sort of spun off into different orbits. A once happy couple can devolve into two ships passing in the night. Still other marriages endure a spiritual barrenness. Nothing's being communicated between them on the deepest level. Oh sure, they'll discuss trivial matters, but they've stopped sharing their relationship with God. Their lives have become more mechanical. It's all about the routine tasks. Reminds me of little Christy. She was playing in the floor with her dolls. At one point she staged a wedding. She picked up her little teddy bear groom and she said to the imaginary pastor, okay, you can read us our rights. <laughs> Suddenly, Christy shifted goals. She went from the bride to the pastor. She said in a deep voice, she said, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you may say may be held against you and you have the right to have an attorney present and you may kiss your bride. Sadly, in a barren marriage, taking vows and reading rights gets confused. The silence can be deafening. What is said is used against the other person. The threat of an attorney is always on the horizon and not a lot of kissing goes on. 
Hey, God created humans with a desire for intimacy, for a heartfelt closeness with another person. And he invented marriage as the venue where those needs can be met. God wants our marriages to be fruitful, not barren. Marriage was intended to be a hotbed for intimacy. He wants the flame lit and burning brightly in your marriage. Which is why God pays Manoah and his wife a visit. We're told in verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. We started with desperation, then suddenly there's a visitation. An angelic messenger appears with a promise for this woman. And he said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. He promises her offspring, fruitfulness. No longer will Mrs. Manoah be barren. I believe God desires for all marriages to experience a degree of spiritual and emotional and relational fruitfulness. For Manoah and his wife, that meant a son. For you and your spouse, it may mean a diffusion of the tension that exists or a restored trust or a new sense of partnership or the ability to relax and laugh and have fun again or a willingness to forgive and to start over or harmony in a major decision or the renewal of romantic feelings or the desire to just talk and communicate or a rekindling of sexual expression and fulfillment. Comedian Rodney Dangerfield, do you all know Rodney Dangerfield? You can put his quote up here on the screen. Rodney Dangerfield said of his notoriously sorry marriage, my wife and I eat apart, we take separate vacations, we never talk to each other or even see each other, we're doing everything we can to keep our marriage together. Now that's a barren marriage. Yet it grieves me to see marriages that have that same strategy. Rather than pursue an intimate relationship, the goal is just to stay out of each other's way. God desires better for you and your spouse. He wants to visit your marriage and create a fruitfulness. If you're in a desperate marriage, please don't give up. In the darkest days of World War II, Winston Churchill told the battle-weary British people, wars are not won by evacuation, and neither are good marriages. Suddenly, instantly, God can pay your marriage a visit and create a bounty where there was barrenness. But not only does God, through the angel, pay this marriage a visitation, he also shares a revelation. God speaks a message about his plans for their home, a word about the promised child. He explains that the child they'll sire will be a Nazarite. Notice verse 4. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. 
We know that later in the story, Samson will lose his superhuman strength when Delilah gives him an unwanted haircut. But the long hair was merely a symbol of the spiritual vow that he had taken from his birth. In number six, we learn that this vow of the Nazarite was threefold. No wine or the fruit of the vine, no razor should come upon your head, no haircuts. His hair would grow long and nappy. And no touching anything that was dead. Three things. And this took the Nazarite out of normal circulation. It separated him from the world. For you see, this is what makes the world go round. Even today. Go into any strip mall in Miami and you'll find three things. Or two things at least. A liquor store and a barber shop. A hair salon. And a funeral home isn't far away. Folks love physical pleasure. They like to, like to take a little nip from time to time. People strive for outward beauty. They like their cool clips. And people attend funerals. They remind us of life's temporary importance. Life is short. Humans try to get all they can while they can. For after this life, it's a rip. You rest in peace. Did you know this world is all about nips and clips and rips? <laughs> People today are all about physical pleasure, outward beauty, and temporary importance. Or you could put it, feeling great, looking great, being great. This is still what makes the world go round. Everything people revolve their life around. It's about feeling great, looking great, and being great. Yet God established the Nazarite to say the opposite to the world. His life was a contradiction to the values of this world. He lived for spiritual fulfillment, not physical pleasure. He didn't touch the fruit of the vine. He cultivated an inner beauty, not external looks. He never got a haircut. And he was about eternal life, not temporal importance. He couldn't touch anything that was dead. Real pleasure and real beauty and real significance is found in God alone, not in the pursuits of this life. And this is what the Nazarite stood for. The revelation from God to Manoah's wife was that their offspring would be a holy child. A child set apart for God and for God's purposes. Samson would be God's champion. He would fight God's battles. He would serve God's people. You can look at it this way. The cure for this couple's barrenness was holiness. I want to say that again. That is so important. The cure for this couple's barrenness was holiness. I'm going to say it a third time because it's that important. A cure for this couple's barrenness is holiness. Of course, this is not what we hear from the world today. We've been told that if we want to get back the spark in our marriage, if we want to add a little spice after the rice, then we need to turn to worldly ways and to fleshly techniques. Oh, feeling great, 
is what will rescue our marriage. A candlelight dinner, a weekend away at a posh hotel, a Caribbean cruise, a gift certificate to Victoria's Secrets. Physical pleasure will rekindle a marriage. Or perhaps looking great will restore passion to a marriage and recapture your spouse's attention. A new haircut or a makeover. Or if I slimmed down and shaped up. Or perhaps a new wardrobe would do the trick. We look to externals to enhance our marriage. And some folks assume that being great is what will cure a barren marriage. Oh, once he succeeds in his career and gets that big salary and we move into that dream house, then we'll be happy. That temporal success will improve our marriage. See, we've been told that physical pleasure and external beauty and temporal success are the ways to improve a marriage. And friends, we have been sold a false bill of goods. For the ultimate cure for a barren marriage is not more worldliness, but holiness. To light a fire in your marriage that will burn long after the honeymoon is over, you need to dedicate your life and your marriage to God. The tension in a marriage will lessen only when we receive God's blessing. You need to give him your heart. What happens when you get tired or sick and don't feel great? Which is a lot of the time, quite frankly. If I remember those vows you took said for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. Fulfillment in marriage comes when a husband and wife have forged a spiritual bond. They're connected soul to soul despite how they feel physically. What happens in a marriage when you no longer look great, when crow's feet land on your forehead, and they will, when wrinkles take the place of curves, when tight skin and firm muscles turn into bags and sags, <laughs> hopefully when that day comes, you'll realize that the most powerful attractiveness is internal, not external. Happily married couples get excited about each other because of who they are, not just how they look. And what happens if you never become great? Or worse, if you become great and realize there was nothing to it? What really glues my life to my wife is the joy of knowing that we're serving the Lord together. We have a common call, a mutual mission. Our lives and our marriage are counting for eternity. See, here's a profound revelation. I hope you catch it. I really do. The cure to barrenness in a marriage is holiness unto God. The closer two spouses grow to God, the closer they'll grow together. Years ago, someone showed me an illustration that I use now whenever I counsel a couple. It's simple but profound. Usually the most profound things are simple. Take a triangle. There we go. Put a husband and wife at the two bottom corners and place God at the top of the triangle. Now slide the husband and the wife up the sides of the triangle. You'll notice the closer they get to God, the closer they'll get to one another. 
But likewise, the further they get from God, what happens to their relationship? The further they get from each other. And this is so true. A marriage relationship is really just an outgrowth of both persons' relationship with God. Maybe you've tried the Caribbean cruise in the posh hotels. Maybe you now live in that big house, but you're still lonely. And your marriage still languishes. Stop the worldliness and give holiness a try. If you want a sparkling, thrilling, electric, stimulating marriage, put love for God at the center. Pray together. Study your Bible together. Break it open on this weekend trip. Find a way to serve the Lord together. Work on the spiritual side of your life and watch it resuscitate intimacy in your marriage. Well, Mrs. Manoa, she received a visitation and a revelation, but soon found herself struggling for unification. The angel appeared to her, but but not to her husband. Now, why God chose to first visit the wife, not her husband, we're not sure. Maybe she was just more spiritually sensitive than he was. Often women are. Maybe Manoah needed to be humbled. We don't know, but what we do know is that after this visitation, the couple struggled to get it together. Understand, when God first visits your marriage, don't expect instant harmony. His visitation will rekindle a new love and fresh feelings and clearer priorities, but it doesn't instantly resolve all your differences. Even in a good marriage, unification is a struggle. Recently, I read some startling statistics. Startling, are you, make sure you're sitting down carefully. It could knock you over. Some startling statistics. Did you know 54% of American women don't know that a touchdown counts six points? 54%. don't know that a safety counts two points. That's how far apart men and women are. When I hear of a couple that's getting a divorce on the grounds of incompatibility, I just laugh. The mere fact that one's a man and one's a woman makes them incompatible. Every couple has to struggle a bit and strive for unity and good communication in a marriage. It's hard work. Recently, researchers discovered 1,300 previously unpublished letters that were sent from former President Harry Truman to his beloved wife, Bess. 1,300 letters. It seems that every day President Truman was away, his wife, away from his wife, he penned her a letter. You'd think the most powerful man in the world would have more important duties than to write his wife a note. But Harry Truman realized the value of working at communication in his marriage. Did you hear about the California surfer? He found a bottle on the beach, rubbed it, and out popped a genie. The genie promised him one wish. Well, he looked across the ocean, into the distance, and he said, well, you know, I've always thought how nice it would be if we had a freeway that stretched over the ocean here from Long Beach to Hawaii. 
The genie balked. She said, do you realize the thousands of pillars we'd have to sink and the lies that would be lost sinking them? I won't do it. Make another request. The surfer thought for a minute and said, well, I've always wanted to understand women. Maybe you could teach me everything there is to know about the opposite sex. The genie thought for a minute and said, four lane or six lane? <laughs> Realize men and women think differently. And this makes unity something that we have to work at. In verse eight, Manoah acts like a typical husband, typical husband. His wife has just received a visitation and a revelation from God, but rather than listen to her and study what God said to her, he asked God to appear to him. In other words, he refuses to take the woman's word for it. He wants to see and hear these spiritual revelations for himself. And he prays in verse 8. Oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. God just gave those instructions to his wife. But he was too proud to listen to Mrs. Manoah. And I love what happens next in verse 9. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. God heard his prayer. God read his attitude too. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. God does it to him again. He appears to his wife without him. Verse 10 tells us what happens next. His wife rushes to get her husband. And a humbling statement is made in verse 11. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. Certainly, there are other Bible passages that teach us that the wife should follow her husband. But here, a husband follows his wife. And for good reason. I'll go ahead and say it. For 99% of the time, it's true. The greatest hindrance and hurdle to unification in marriage is the man's pride. I didn't get any amens, did I? <laughs> get over it, guys. It's true. James 4, verse 6 tells us, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the key to our relationship with God. But the old male ego is our greatest struggle. Eventually, Manoah will take leadership role in this marriage. But first, God has to humble him and prove that he can speak to his wife just as well as he can speak to him. When God visits a marriage, often one member of the partnership gets a little ahead of the other. Perhaps the work begins in the husband's heart and he sweeps up his wife in his enthusiasm. Or maybe God does a work in the wife's heart and the husband comes along out of curiosity. The partner with the head start has to learn that they're no greater than the one lagging behind. And the partner who's a little behind has to believe that God will enable them to catch up. You see, the key to unity is humility. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33 is the wonderful but controversial passage 
that outlines the marital roles for men and women. Men should lovingly lead while women should willingly follow. But before the first word is mentioned about the wives and the husbands and their roles, a general rule is applied to us all. For verse 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There should be a mutual submission in the marriage first. This should underline, underline the roles that are played by the husband and the wife. Both partners need to humble themselves and acknowledge God's authority over their lives in their marriage. You know, it's popular today for men to drop to a knee when they propose to their brides. How many of you dropped to a knee when you proposed? Well, the rest of you should have. But you know, a good marriage doesn't just start on your knee a good marriage is all about bowing that same knee to God every single day of your life. It's about humility. Yes, in this marriage, there's a struggle for unification. But it culminates with a show of dedication. Manoah and his wife, they offer a sacrifice of commitment to God. And here's where a desperate marriage turns the corner when it's presented as a sacrifice to God. Don't misunderstand. I take very seriously the vow I made to my wife. And she places great importance on the vow that she made to me. But what keeps us pressing on, what keeps us working in our marriage in the good times and in the bad times is the realization that we have not only made a vow to each other, but we have also made a promise to God. We vowed to God that we'd be faithful to each other and to Him. See, there's a higher authority at work in my marriage, and it holds my wife and I accountable for how we treat one another. I'm sure that if my wife's commitment to me was all that was at stake, there would have been times when she would have wanted to toss in the towel. Over the years, I've done some boneheaded stuff that hurt her deeply. There have been times when I didn't deserve her love, but she remained loyal to me because she made a vow not just to me, but to God. Our marriage is more than an earthly partnership between two people. It's a divine union made up of three people. I love how Solomon phrases it. It's a threefold cord, which includes Kathy, myself, but most important, our Lord Jesus. You know, in some circles today, it's popular to draw up a prenuptial agreement prior to the marriage. I read of one such prenup that contained 16 pages of specifications. Outlined in the agreement were details concerning how often the couple would have sex, what time they'd go to bed, what brand of gasoline they'd use in their cars, how they'd handle laundry and other chores. The bride-to-be made this statement, this is the plan we think will keep us married for 50 or 60 years. I'm sorry, but that kind of commitment won't keep you married for 50 or 60 days. You need a godly reason. For marriage to work, it has to be grounded in a commitment to an authority greater than either party. I 
have taken a vow to God and I'm responsible to the Almighty for what kind of husband I am regardless of what kind of wife Kathy turns out to be. And she too has taken a vow to God and shares that same responsibility toward me. See, when Mr. and Mrs. Manoah offered their sacrifice of dedication, God provided them a sign of revitalization. Look at the amazing finale to this story. Verse 19 tells us, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And the angel did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. You remember the prophet Elijah ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. This angel doesn't even wait for the chariot. He jumps into the flame that's lapping up the sacrifice and he surfs it all the way to the heavenly shore. It must have been an amazing sight to behold. You know, Bible scholars point out that often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. It's possible that's the case here. In fact, remember the angel called himself Wonderful. This is the name Isaiah gave to Jesus, Wonderful Counselor. If the angel that appeared to Manoah was actually Jesus, it makes for beautiful imagery. For when he and his wife stoked the fire and offered up their burnt offering, their sacrifice, Jesus jumped into the midst of their fire. And this is how you revitalize a marriage, how you rekindle the marital flame. You rededicate yourself and your marriage to God and then you ask Jesus to join your flame. And when the Lord jumps in, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Jesus is like nitrous oxide. He aids the combustion. When Jesus joins a couple's flame, their marriage burns cleaner and hotter and longer. It reminds me of what happened at a wedding in Spokane, Washington at the First Presbyterian Church. Just as Craig Looper planted the traditional kiss on the lips of his bride, the fire alarm went off. Apparently a fire in another part of the building had triggered the alarm. Afterwards, a friend joked, wow, that was one hot kiss. <laughs> well, when Jesus joins the flame of your marriage, you can expect lots and lots of hot kisses. Notice in verse 20, finally, Mr. and Mrs. Noah are in harmony. And notice how it occurs. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. They are finally united on their faces before the Lord. And this excites me. For to hear some marriage experts talk, there's no hope for my marriage. They make reconciliation and rekindling too complicated, too complex. There are too many steps. There are too many duties to keep. There are weeks when our responsibilities keep Kathy and I from having a date night with each other. 
When our kids were in college, we couldn't afford any romantic getaways. Oh, we might as well face it. We don't always feel great. And I no longer look great. Only speak for me, not her. And I'm sure neither of us will be considered great. But I can do the most important thing to keep my marriage fires burning. I can humble myself. I can get on my knees with my wife. And together we can rededicate our lives and our marriage to the purposes of God. We can seek and share and serve the Lord together. And you can too. That's not hard. Let me show you this. That's not complicated. It might be hard because of your pride. Maybe your marriage is filled with desperation. But today God is at work. You already feel his presence. He's already convicting your heart. A visitation has occurred. And he's provided you a revelation of his will. Always remember, the cure for barrenness is not more worldliness, but holiness. You and your spouse need to seek God. And though you still struggle a bit for unification, it shouldn't stop you from dedication. You don't always have to see eye to eye to stay knee to knee. Humble your heart. Bend your knee together. Offer up your marriage as a sacrifice to God. And as you do, the spirit of our Lord Jesus will join your flame. God will bring a wonderful revitalization to your marriage. Today, Jesus wants to join your flame and turn your barren marriage into a fun and fruitful marriage again. Amen? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that we would take it to heart. Lord, I pray for the men here today. Lord, that we would be men of humility. We got on our knee when we proposed, but now, Lord, we need to stay on our knees. Lord, I pray that we would take the initiative today and take our wife aside and together get on our knees and rededicate ourselves to you. Please work in our hearts this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.